Get a nice forty there. And as a result of through no version their own, you know, that group became about the richest group in the world. That they attracted all these uh, predators who wanted to come get a get a piece of the pie. And let's say that the movie is accurately portraying history. Then that some of the uh, the most established citizen in town, one who's you know best known for being friendly and helpful to the Osage Indians was also masterbinding a scheme of getting their various his white relatives to marry into the Osage tribe and get themselves designated as heirs and then start pumping off the Indians so that they could get get the money for themselves. That's a grim story and, uh, and reflecting on my on my two blog posts, rules for life and my, my rules for decoding reality. So, one rule for life is that uh, a fool and his money are soon parted, and uh, extension of that, a foolish people and their money are soon parted. So, whatever you think of the Arabs, right? So, uh, most of my friends are Orthodox Jews, not the most Arab friendly people I'll ever meet. You've got to hand it to the Arabs, they have held on to their wealth. Right? A lot of other peoples have gotten rich, and the Arabs have become rich through no virtue of their own. It's just that enormous quantities of, uh, of oil have been found in their lands, such as Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia has gotten enormously rich. They use their power to pursue their own interests. So you can't really say the Arabs are foolish people because they've held on to their wealth and their power and they use it. As opposed to the Osage Indians got incredibly rich and then it just uh, largely disappeared. They were just ripe for the picking. And I'm haunted by one one dynamic in the film, and that is that the person you marry is the one who is betraying you. Like, I've had the experience of my back going out on me and being absolutely helpless. So I would have a nightmare of being married to someone or close to someone, dependent on someone. And my back goes out and they do the equivalent of laugh at me or plot against me. Or I've had more than my normal share of illness throughout my life. Now, what if the people closest to me were you know, somehow participating in that. Like, yeah, I was I was predisposed to a life of poor health, uh, perhaps because of the vegetarian diet that I was raised with. Right, the vegetarian diet was supposed to be so healthy. Right, it uh, it hobbled me, and because I unquestionably carried on parts of my childhood, including my vegetarian diet, 
uh, you know, it crippled me for 50 years. And, you know, I took that, inherited that, accepted that, believed in that from the people who loved me the most. But it was also what uh, reduced me to the sickbed much of my life. So whenever you form a close relationship, you'll inevitably experience something akin to you, you desperately need them and they laugh at you. Because no one can always be there and responsive and sensitive to our needs. So I think we all had the experience of like sharing something heartfelt or turning for help to, to those that we most look for for help. And uh, the other party is disappointing us, right? Because other people give and they can't. It's inevitable that they will disappoint us. And because other people are flawed, often they will perceive their interests being quite contrary to yours. So, you may very well be vulnerable, you know, desperately in need, the person you turn to most in the world, you rely on the most of the one who has the capacity to hurt you the most and will inevitably hurt you as their priorities will not always be in alignment with what you expect that their priorities should be. But uh, you see the husband and wife kind of at the, the center of this movie, like he's a white guy, damaged, not too smart, returned from World War One and marries this Indian woman who's not mentally there, right? She has, she has an executor over her wealth because she's apparently uh, mentally retarded. And so she's incredibly vulnerable to him. He's not too smart. He's incredibly vulnerable to his charismatic, powerful, smart uncle who tries to devise, tries to, you know, devise ways for, for his family to get rich by bumping off the Indians. And so this, this Indian woman, the wife, actually has diabetes. And much of that's on her. Like she, she's given a program of how to maximize her health and she doesn't follow it. Like she eats against all instructions conducts herself against all instructions and so she has horrible health and she's utterly dependent on her white husband who's not the brightest bull and largely under the sway of his uncle who you know, is incentivizing him to perhaps bump off his wife or into much of her family to get his hands on their wealth and the uncle out World War One veteran signs over as well to, to the uncle. There's a painful part of reality the people that we're closest to are the people that we trust the most, need the most, depend on the most, have the most, we're the most genetically related to, uh, often might be the ones who, who will inevitably let us down just because all parties here are human and uh, different, different individuals have uh, different aims, different values, different gifts. I'm just thinking about what eventually, what eventually saves the uh, Osage Indians. It's not the Osage Indians, it's not the federal Indians, it's the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover send some federal agents out. And these largely white guys solve the murders. And arrange the prosecution of the murderers and, and win the prosecution. The Osage Indians and murdering them 
then it's also another part of the outgroup because they're rescued. How did my family and peers on the same vegetarian diet fare? Bernard in the house, live. Okay, so they have generally, oh, neither, neither my brother or sister uh, are fully vegetarian. Right? They've had, uh, my brother actively eats fish, and um, my sister has not been as strict a vegetarian as, as I have. So they are, they're just going to bowl. And then that's it, right, in the family, right? My family is a breakaway from everyone we're related to because my parents were very self-adventism and it's nutty ideas about vegetarianism. But I think Nathan Kaufness has documented quite convincingly the destructive, dangerous components of the vegetarian diet and uh, how when you raise your kids vegetarian makes them highly unpopular. Uh, you're reducing your odds of being able to successfully socialize. In addition, you're just not going to get the nutrients that you need. You know, you know like the impaired cognitive, in addition to impaired social environment when you're a vegetarian. Bernard grew up on a diet of raw milk, bread, potatoes, and meat. Yeah, and look where he is today. So, this week, in addition to watching the, the Scorsese film, Sinners of the, the Flower Moon, the haunting, depressing story of uh, white people, murders of the Osage Indians, at the same time as white people come and save the Osage Indians. The Osage Indians aren't capable of looking after themselves. The Jewish people may well soon parted. Uh, I was watching the PBS Frontline documentary on the Uvalde school shooting. And it was so depressing to see the incompetence of the Uvalde Police Department and the overall law enforcement response. They waited 77 minutes to enter the room where the shooter was. So in that time, kids and teachers bled out and died, right? Because they knew the shooter had a powerful weapon that would pierce their, their body armor. So they were highly reluctant to go in. And they used the excuse, oh, we need to get a master key to be able to unlock the door. But it turns out the door was unlocked the whole time. And they wait 77 minutes to go in, come up with every excuse on the side. And one haunting component is that the, the victims of the shooting and the purported should be law enforcement rescuers seem quite closely related. I mean, one law enforcement officer showed up and his wife was in one of the classrooms who was under threat. And so you would think, and it's your own kin, it's your own people where you share the same religion, uh, nationalities, uh, culture, language, and yet you just stand back. So if you were lying there bleeding on the floor, Oh, that's you. Would you primarily care whether or not your law enforcement that had showed up to the scene were of your same religion or of your same race or of your yeah, political or cultural or religious beliefs? No, you'd primarily want them to be effective. But if you're bleeding out, you wouldn't care if it's someone of a different race if it literally comes in and saves you. And it's this efficiency challenge where apparently, obviously I'm not a world expert here, 
apparently American workers are pretty highly productive. Like they work hard. Americans are pretty efficient. So for all swaths of life, what you most care about is the integrity and efficiency with which people do their, their tasks. Like when you're driving down the street and there are other drivers coming towards you, what you most care about is that they follow the law. Like you care about that more than what their religion is or what their race is or what their political beliefs are. Right? When you've got a plumbing problem, right? So you have to shut off the water. Right, or your, your pipes are frozen and splintered and broken. What you most want for your power is you know, efficient, honest service. I don't know much about cars, so I have felt kind of vulnerable throughout my life when I take my car in for servicing. And much of the time, I felt like you know, mechanics are taking advantage of my ignorance and just milking me. And so there's rare occasions that when I find a, an honest car mechanic, you think I care that much about the, the race of religion or the car mechanic? No, I can't celebrate that. Or, you know, your, your cable connection, your internet goes down, you want to get it solved, your computer breaks down, you want to get it solved. Right? You, you care about efficiency and honesty and integrity the person you're dealing with much more than race or religion. It's just such a chillingly, incredibly incompetent response to the Ovaldi school shooting by people who are closely related to the victims, just allowing them to bleed out. Like, I bet those victims would rather you know, people of a completely different race, but who are effective and efficient and, and brave and trained to do their jobs would have shown up. So often in times of crisis, people desperately want someone who speaks their language. So California, uh, people who suffer from an accident or setback and they, they need help. Like it's really important that they you know, get someone who speaks Spanish. Right? But uh, frequently, what should be more important to them is that the person is skilled and effective and efficient and honest at what they're doing and can provide the law enforcement of the, the, the help that they need. It's, it's hard to believe that uh, homogeneous, highly cohesive, high social trust society like Japan has such dramatically less productive workforce than the United States. Like, why the heck is that happening? Like, why is Japan, for its cohesion and high social trust, why is its workforce so less productive, so less efficient than, uh, than the United States, where people you know, frequently go to a workplace where they feel very little in common with their fellow workers? I mean, think about our friend Elliot Blatt and his frustrations at work, his alienation. Right when Karl Marx was talking about the alienation of the worker, and he's probably thinking about people like uh, Elliot Blatt. Right? He, uh, he does not enjoy many of his workplace interactions. It does, does not seem to provide him with joy. Right, and, and many people go to a workplace where they feel uh, there's nothing in common with their fellow workers, and yet, how out of all that? Does America develop such a highly productive, 
relatively efficient, cost-effective workforce compared to you know, a highly cohesive social trust society like, like Japan. So in that area of efficiency, America does really well. Thinking of a story uh, from Australia, when Japan bombed Darwin during World War II, the Australian officers who were supposed to monitor the, the radar, they were on smoker, right? They were taking a 10 minute break. So dominant Australian and New Zealand ethos is one of fairness. Dominant American ethos is one of freedom. So there, there are good sides and bad sides to each ethos. But in Australia, the camaraderie, high social trust and high social cohesion, you know, it often goes hand in hand with less efficiency and less productivity. Like during World War II, Australian unions, particularly the dock workers, were frequently going on strike. Right? The country's at war. The country is fighting for its life against Japan, desperately need materials to carry on the fight. And the dock workers are striking because they've been provided with coffee instead of tea. And similar, similar things. And just the, the bloody mindedness of millions in, in Australia and Great uh, Britain, and I presume New Zealand too. Uh, like strong unions go hand in hand with, you know, some cohesion and social trust and you know, a sense of bonding, you know, among workers. But if it that leads to such inefficient outcomes, right? There's a significant downside. So, you know, people, you know, get to work and they meet people like themselves, and that's going to be a happier experience. It's, it's jolting when I go back to Australia and I notice the high social trust, social cohesion, the, the corporate nature of society compared to America, but more of a sense that we're in it together, the easy way that you make friends and mateship and kind of sense of community in Australia compared to America, which is much more about isolated individuals trying to be all they can be, trying to be as successful as possible. Uh, so that that mateship, that social connection feels amazing. But then I've got to hand it to America for its uh, level of uh, excellence. So of course I made, made notes. You think I just produce this, this string of amazing insights just off the top of my head. What type of school should you go to to avoid a school shooting? Uh, so one thing I was very impressed with in Australia is the high level of security at Jewish institutions. And that got dramatically upgraded after 9-11. So I went to a Hanukkah event in the park and there were four um, security officers. So there were about 100, 100 Jews at the event and four armed security officers. In the United States, there's you know, countless synagogues that have no security. It just seemed absolutely insane. I, I, now, at a synagogue of any size, of course, you'll have security. But... Uh, 
Yes, I would assume likelihood of your school being shot up would approximate the level of uh, violent crime in that community. So, are there any are there any markers of like low crime communities? I think the higher the social trust and social cohesion in that community, the, the less chance for a school shooting. So, not familiar with many school shootings in Japan. I was stunned after October 7th by the very low level of uh, gun ownership. I think I read this week only 2% of Israelis are licensed to carry weapons. And I had pictured Israel as a society with you know, a lot more people licensed and permitted to carry weapons. It just didn't turn out to be true. And they were just so incredibly vulnerable. Again, you've got a relative, you know, much higher social trust, you know, much more cohesive society than the United States. And yet, so utterly incompetent when it came to that uh, Hamas attack. So, you think the people who were victimized by Hamas you know, would have preferred to have had effective, competent uh, law enforcement officers or military, you know, protecting them against terrorists, even if they weren't of their same tribe. Of course, you go to a music festival and expect to get raped and slaughtered, 350 people you know, murdered at that uh, all-night rave in southern Israel, just a few miles outside of Gaza. Right? You think if they would have had more effective security, even if it was of a different tribe, of course everyone would, would want that. Can't quite following the, the direction of the chat. Right, we're in this together, guys. We're, we're building these insights on top of each other's work. So yeah, the Osage Indians, for example, they recognized that they couldn't get it done on their own. So they kept looking to outsiders for help. And eventually they, did, uh, a trial and effort and spending of money, eventually they found someone who can get it done. So for almost all of our problems, there's someone out there who can fix you. Right? If I'd had someone who convinced me at 18 that I could have saved a lifetime of health problems by just introducing a little meat or fish into my diet, that wouldn't matter to me what race or religion or uh, you know, political orientation or sexual orientation. Like it could have been uh, a... Now, an Arab Muslim uh, transsexual who is an atheist and a communist, right? If, if he, she could have convinced me to eat a little meat or fish when I was 18, I would have saved myself a lifetime of health problems, right? If you've got car trouble and you, you've got an honest, effective mechanic or internet trouble or plumbing trouble, right? But you most want someone who can get the job done. I was just thinking, Many, many areas of life really don't care about people's race, religion, and sexual orientation. Right? We just want them to be decent. And if we require the services, we want them to be effective. Right? Like we all have problems, and there are pretty much always people out there with solutions to our problems. And if we can just get the problem solved, we don't care about the sexual orientation of the people who can solve our problems.
right? You want a good, honest landscaper, effective landscaper, so that you don't have puddles and, and everything drains properly, right? You just want them to be good at their job. I mean, my life was also crippled by ADHD. If I had someone who could have convinced me at age 15 to get tested for that, right? you think I would have cared much if uh, there were different sexual orientation, race, religion, or political opinion from me? Yeah, the good old times when Luke Ford Chat was its own entity, totally unrelated to whatever Luke Ford and his guests talked about. <laughs> so, yeah, probably the most important quality for, I want to stay in the sun, most important quality for a live streamer is the ability to connect with people. And so, I, I have to face that, that bitter, bitter truth that much of what absorbs me is of no interest to the people who watch me. And, and often the people who watch me aren't so much watching me, they're coming to the chat to talk to their friends about topics of interest to them, are completely unrelated to whatever it is that uh, I'm, I'm nattering on about. So another area of life where I notice race, religion, and political and sexual orientation don't really matter much is in my various 12-step programs, like when you survive a crippling addiction, right? You get together with people at, at meetings who've also survived that same addiction, right? It's a sense of camaraderie that you've survived a shipwreck together. And race, religion, sexual orientation, politics just don't matter given quality of your bond that you've you've survived a shipwreck together and you've you know found a way to to make it from the, the wrecked ship back to civilization. So I think this is one of the good things about the United States of America and the efficiency of the system that uh, you can with enough initiative, you can get so many of your problems solved relatively efficiently, effectively in this country without, without some of the same barriers of unions and excessive government regulation and excessive in-group conformity that involve uh, a lot of people. And so too, if I'd had people who would have pointed out the crippling nature of my emotional addictions in a way that would be effective to me. People point that out to me 40 years ago, right? I wouldn't have cared much about their sexual political orientation, their race or religion. If someone can do you a solid, you just don't care about those things. It's your mind. So have you guys seen the new Scorsese film Colors of the Cloud Moon? Where have you seen the new Frontline doco on uh, Jack Teixeira, who is sharing all those secrets in a Discord server? So the perils of the personality, right? He didn't go on that Discord server initially to share secrets. He went on the Discord server to do what we're doing right now, to have the type of conversation that uh, it's much harder to have in real life because of various restrictions. 
And so uh, people come on here or go on Discord to have more uninhibited chats and then start enjoying this online personality more than you enjoy your restricted and conformist real-world personality. And so spend more and more time online. And then the people you know in the chat become increasingly important to you. And then we naturally want to advance in status, right? Think about times when you have lost status. It saps you of energy. It saps you of drive. It saps you of happiness, right? Just status, the car you drive, right? You have to be like incredibly spiritual to not feel a significant blow from a decrease in, in status, right? We're, we're all pretty much wired to have as high a status as possible and to avoid social public humiliation as much as possible because it's just devastating to your energy level and your happiness level, just the, the quality of your life. And so when we start enjoying our online world, right? we want to advance in status in the online world. So you can understand why this man who's in the I think, US National Guard starts sharing top secret documents to promote how important it was. And well, I'd like to think that none of us have shared top secret documents and stuff like these. Where we all do the equivalent either through the, the wisdom of our comments. How do we do it? We, we all want to advance in status. Like you, you get status right, by tearing other people down, or at least right, pointing out defects in their arguments and their logic and their facts. Right, like the sport for, for many of us men. Right, when I do a decoding of an individual who's of interest to my audience, right? That's the way that my decoding is is relevant and accurate and important, right? That's the way that I uh, gain status and the person who is decoded and pointed out how he's uh, operating out of bad faith or poor logic or poor facts, right? He, he drops in status. So you can see how you get excited about the online world and you start sharing things to try to make you advance in status. Like uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine remembers when these two professors were like arguing over English literature and she you know, at different times was sleeping with each of them. And she was just tremendously entertained as they competed to show who was smarter and wiser and more knowledgeable about English literature. And she, she was initially sleeping with the lowest status one, but she let him know that if this high status guy they came by that she was going to sleep with him and that's exactly what she did and then the lowest status english professor right, he just cried and cried and cried and talked to all the other all the other uh, of her fellow college students about what she'd done Talk to you like 